have a Bible, I invite you to take it up and turn with me to the book of Colossians. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 will actually be um, our text. And this will actually be our text for, uh, for our Advent celebration, our Advent season. Um, we'll be looking at just a couple of verses and using that as the foundation for our studies. Colossians chapter 1, specifically verses 19 and 20. 19 and 20. And we'll, we'll use this as the foundation for each week kind of building as we look forward to celebrating Christmas together. As we look forward to celebrating the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just read these two brief verses. They're, they're familiar to you probably. And then, um, and then a brief prayer, and we'll study the Bible together. Actually, let me read from verse 15 through, through verse 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. For he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the, of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen. Father, now we turn to your word. We thank you for your word. And we pray that you, by your spirit, will open up our minds and our hearts and indeed our lives in order that we might be able to hear from you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder if you are ready for Christmas, if you've got your plans, all things decorated. Are you ready? We are. We've been for a while. Um, I nearly broke my neck hanging lights on our house, but I didn't, and that's good. Um, but we, we, Christmas has always been a, a fun time for us celebrating. Um, I, I didn't realize this, but I married into a significant amount of Christmas decorations. I don't know if you've experienced that. I, I didn't realize that that wasn't a part of the premarital discussion, but once we got married and we had our two-bedroom apartment, then all of a sudden there were all of these boxes that somehow arrived. And so we decorated, and as young, a young married couple, we were, we were thrilled to have our first married Christmas together. And then, uh, so we invited, you know, family to come over and to enjoy time with us around the holidays. And, and after we had decorated, and I remember this, my mother-in-law comes into our two-bedroom apartment, and she, she comes to the top of the stairs, she looks around, and she says, it looks like Christmas threw up in here wasn't exactly an encouragement to my wife, but <clears throat> it did. We, we might have gone a little overboard, I think. It could have happened. But it's fun because it just makes the home, doesn't it? It just makes the ho your home warm and inviting and just fun and festive this time of year. At least it does for us. And our home is so significant to us, isn't it? Having a place where we can know that's where we belong, having a place that we know that's a place of warmth and a place of encouragement, a place of rest, home, a place where we can dwell is so significant for us, for all of us, to have a dwelling place. Christmas is about dwelling. God has chosen to dwell among us. That's what Christmas is about. God chose to send his son Jesus, 
leaving heaven to come and dwell on earth, to come to earth, creator God entering into his own creation to rehab, to rebuild, to redeem the creation that he had made. Jesus entered into creation to dwell among us. Theologians call it the incarnation, the enfleshment, the incarnate of God. This morning I would like to give some time thinking about the incarnation, God dwelling among us, God making his dwelling among us. In the book of John, chapter 1, the first chapter, the, really be the beginning of the gospel of John, then he says this. This is what John writes. In the beginning was the Word, meaning Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That Jesus, the Word, has always been with God, that Jesus, the Word, is indeed God. There was never a time when God did not exist. He has always existed. Christ has always existed. The Trinity, the God the Father, God the Son, one God, three persons, always been, never created. Jesus wasn't. He was with God in the beginning. And then John in his gospel continues on in verse 14 of that same chapter, of chapter 1, says, And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word who was with the Father, who has always existed, became flesh and made his dwelling among us, made his home among us, made his living among us, made, came to be among the very creation that he had made. And then into our passage that we just read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. And for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Christ, in him. God the Word has always existed. God the Word took on flesh. In, entered into space and time. And God, the Word, was the very fullness of Almighty God in Christ himself. This is what these scriptures tell us about who Jesus is. Jesus is the true Word who came from the Father. He became fully human. And all of the fullness of God was in him and is in him. Fully God, fully human. And God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. And John says, and we have seen the glory, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son. The incarnation. And it's staggering. The incarnation of Christ is absolutely staggering. Are, are you staggered? I'm looking at you, you don't look terribly staggered. Probably because you hear this every year, don't you? If you're in church, maybe this is new to some of you, but for many of us, it's been around. I just want to take a moment and I want to remind you and remind us of the weight and of the holiness of God. The incarnation is shocking. 
It is absolutely outrageous to think that an infinite and a holy God would voluntarily become finite to live with unholy sinners. It's absolutely ludicrous to think such things. The holiness of God is a fearful thing. If we want to know God and, and ourselves, then we must begin by seeing how much God loves his own holiness and cherishes his own purity. And if we don't start there, then we cheapen the gospel message and we, make, we, we turn Christmas into nothing but good feelings and making it holly and jolly. That's not what Christmas is about. We must begin by recognizing the holiness and righteousness of Almighty God. A.W. Tozer put it, this, put it this way. He says, Unless the weight of the burden is felt, the gospel can mean nothing to man. And until he sees a vision of God high and lifted up, there will be no woe and no burden. Low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold them. Unless God is high and lifted up, there will be no woe, there will be no burden. You see, under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the people of God responded to the holiness of God. When they responded, they, they responded with awe and reverence. When Moses met the Lord, when Moses met the Lord, he, he hid his face from God. He hid his face from God because he was afraid to look at God. And, and then years later, Moses said, God, show me your glory. And God said, no one can look on my glory and live. And so he passed by and protected Moses. When the Ark of the Covenant, which was the representative for the very presence and glory of God with his people, was taken captive. It was taken captive. And there were men, when, it was, when they were retrieving it, there were men that actually looked into, all they did is they looked into the Ark of the Covenant. And by looking into the, then God struck down 50,000 men that day for looking into the very Ark of the Covenant. When, when David had the Ark transported to Jerusalem, there was wobbling and it was starting to fall off and one man reached out his hand to help stabilize the Ark and he was immediately struck dead by God. And the people said, who, 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 who can, who can do this? Who can be in the presence of this God? If you were to look in Ezekiel, the first chapter, Ezekiel gets a vision of God. The whole first chapter talks about this vision. And at the end, he says, this is the glory of God. And he falls down to his face in front of this vision of God. The people trembled in the very presence of the holiness and weight of God. Not only did the people tremble in the, in the presence, but God himself spoke of this. God himself frequently spoke about his glory and his holiness. In Isaiah, he says, Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? All the nations are nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Isaiah 40. You remember the story of Job? Some of you may remember that Job went through all of this difficulty and turmoil and tragedy in his life, and he was questioning the very character of God and how does God respond to him? 
Who is it that darkens the counsel by words without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? This is why the incarnation is a shocking miracle. Because in Christ, we have the way, a change in the way in which God has disclosed him. It affects the way God has chosen to display himself. Our holy and transcendent God, who told Moses, no man shall see my face and live, became incarnate, took on flesh, and people saw him, and they lived. Our holy and transcendent God, who struck down men by, for touching the Ark of the Covenant, struck down 50,000 for just looking into the very covenant, Ark of the Covenant, became incarnate, and people spit on him and lived. Our holy and transcendent God, whose throne was so magnificent that Ezekiel failed to have words and fell to his face, he couldn't even describe it, became incarnate and was born as a small baby in a manger, not on a throne. Our holy and transcendent God, who demanded blood sacrifices to atone for sin, became incarnate and allowed himself to be pierced on a cross. Our holy and transcendent God, who said to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, became incarnate and was born in a little insignificant town and worked as a mere carpenter in Nazareth. I suggest to you this morning that the incarnation is absolutely staggering. Absolutely staggering. God came into time and space. The baby, the baby Jesus is the fullness of God in a manger. This, my friends, is absolutely staggering. And we try, to, we try to give voice to this. We try to give words to it in some of our carols. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead seat. Hail, incarnate deity. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. God made his dwelling among us. That we, in Christ, may be able to see all of the fullness of Almighty God. This is staggering. So why does this matter? Why does this, this dwelling matter for our lives? What is this dwelling among us? How is God dwelling among us now? I just want to use the balance of our time to, to, to work out four things. To work out four things that are, they're not all the implications, just some of the implications for the incarnation for us. That the fullness of God has been made known in Christ. First is this. First is this. That he walked in your shoes, but perfectly. That he walked in your shoes, but perfectly. The incarnation means that God walked on earth 
He walked, he lived life like you live life. We are called to, as followers of Jesus, to be in the world, but not of the world. We are called to live on this earth, this broken earth, this earth that is, that is, that is, that is wrecked with sin and difficulty and darkness. And we, as children of the light, are not to be of the world. We're not to just be given into the way in which the world thinks, but we are to find our identity in Christ. We are to live according to his scriptures. We're to live a life that honors him. And that's a difficult journey, isn't it? That's a hard journey for us because while we have been, many of us have come to faith in Christ, we're Christians, and yet we still have our old nature that is a part of us. We still have this battle internally of, that we're wrestling with every single day that is prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And we wrestle and we battle with this every day. We find ourselves wanting certain things and, 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 and enticed and lured away because the evil one is there and desires to have us. We understand these things, and this is the journey of everyday Christianity, of everyday life. And Jesus himself entered in. The incarnation means that Jesus walked in your shoes. He knows what it is to face the temptations and the trials. He knows what it is to walk in this broken world. And yet he did it perfectly. Because unlike you and unlike me, where we give in to temptation, we give in to our, our, our sensual desires, we don't walk perfectly. We sometimes say things and allow the brokenness of our own hearts and the brokenness of others to lure us away from Christ-exalting life that we're supposed to live. We don't get it right, but he did. The incarnation of Jesus Christ means that God himself came, took on flesh, and lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live, and he did it in your place. Because of the holiness, the holy demands of Almighty God. Do you understand the holiness of God? The fearful wrath of God? And yet, it's not on you? Why? Because Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you couldn't live. He did it in your place and in mine. He walked in your shoes, but he did it perfectly. Second is this that the incarnation is significant because he felt your pain, but he heals. He feels your pain, but he heals. The incarnation means that God understands us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. We have one, our great high priest, who is Jesus Christ. We don't have one who is unable to sympathize. The incarnation means that there is that God, almighty God, the righteous and holy God, is not some far-off God, some God that is somehow totally disconnected from our human experience. No, he entered into our human experience. And all of the temptations... And all of the struggles and all of the brokenness that regularly comes into all of our daily lives, Jesus Christ himself knows. Jesus Christ himself has felt. Because why? Because Jesus was born in the same earthly circumstances that we are, though at a different time. But he was born of a woman under law. In fact, he lived in the, very, in the first century without all of the modern conveniences 
There was no cell phones. There was no cars. There was no Twitter. There was no iHome or whatever those things are now. He lived in the first century. His life was probably harder than ours. Jesus ex experienced the struggles of being a young boy, of growing up. He, he had brothers. And I presume, while Jesus was perfect, his brothers weren't. And if that means they're probably like my kids, and they nag each other, and they make fun of each other, and they drive their parents crazy. That's what happens with kids. And Jesus was one, a real kid. And then he grew, and he knew what it was to be tempted. Jesus became a teenager with all of the real things that happen with teenagers. He matured, and he grew. We, we, we cannot just sort of divorce Jesus' humanity as if somehow he didn't have stinky armpits like the rest of the other we can't do that. That is to take away from his humanity. Jesus became a teenager and knew all of the temptations of teenagers. He experienced public ridicule. Jesus was one who knew what it was to face shame. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knew what it was to be thirsty. He knew what it was to be tired and to grow weary in the journey. And when he hit his finger with a hammer, he knew what it was to experience real pain. It hurt. I assume he hit his finger with a hammer. He suffered unbearable pain on the cross. And Jesus experienced something that you and I have yet to experience, and that Jesus himself experienced death. He can sympathize with the brokenness of your heart the brokenness of your life, the shame and the guilt. He understands. He knows. The, the horrible things that people have said, the things that you've had to endure, the failures in your life. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, but one who was tempted in every single way and yet was still without sin. He understands what it is to enter into your pain, but he didn't stay dead see and therefore he in the cross of Jesus Christ has the power to heal because on the cross and through his glorious resurrection he therefore has the he broke the power of sin and death and hell over his creation in order that he can enter into your pain not just to give you a hug but in order to provide real hope to provide real healing in the life of those who are his people there is hope and there's healing in Christ, and a hope and a healing in Christ that nothing else can give, nothing else. The incarnation matters because he entered in to your pain, our pain, and yet he, he, trans, he traveled through our pain and through death onto the other side in order that he might provide real hope and real healing for those who will believe in him and entrust themselves to him. The incarnation matters. Thirdly, the incarnation matters because he came near, Jesus came near to send you far. He came near to send you far. He, Jesus came near to us so that he could live the life that we couldn't live. 
Jesus came near to us to enter into our pain, to be tempted in every way, and yet do it without sin. And Jesus came near, not just so that we could hang out with one another, but so that other people might be able to experience the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that we could be sent. Elaine Heath puts it this way. In the incarnation, the incarnation is a constant subversion of power and privilege in religious leadership. The incarnation confronts us with a God who came to us naked and vulnerable to live among us and to express the divine love as a faithful neighbor. What does it mean to truly worship this kind of God? It means showing up. It means paying attention to our actual neighbors and loving them in ways that matter to them. It means forging or foregoing all privilege and power as we journey with others to heaven. It means a daily surrender of ego. Jesus humbled himself, came, took on the form of flesh. He denied himself. He, if you like, he emptied himself of the privilege of God in order that he might be able to take on in the form of flesh. He didn't cease to become God, but he chose, it says the Philippians 2 says, he chose He chose not to use things, the powers that were his right. The incarnation means that we should seek opportunities to deny ourselves as Christians. Self-denial, of course, is not a popular thing in our world. We see indulgence all surrounding us. Self-denial is not popular in our world, and quite frankly, it's not popular in my mind. I don't like it. I don't like to deny myself things because I like things. I like hamburgers but when Jesus became incarnate he voluntarily denied himself the privilege of being God in order to be mocked and killed he did this because he longed to redeem us he longed to redeem us and he knew that in order to accomplish salvation the demands of his holiness had to be met and he knew that we could never meet those demands and so he denied himself took on the form of flesh and he came to perfectly meet the demands of of a holy and righteous God in our place he did this for us he denied himself and in turn we as those who have received Christ by his grace are to have the same mind as Christ that we are to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than ourselves. We are to consider others better than ourselves. We are to deny ourselves. We are to love others for Christ. There's a young couple that I know that the church that I came from, it's a church that was an urban church in the city, in the city of Akron, and there was a young couple that met at the University of Akron and then they got married. And because of their love for Christ, they had decided that what they wanted to do was they wanted to, to buy a house and to move into a poor neighborhood that was right around where the church was. And so that's what they did. They, they bought a, a cheap house and it was a terrible house to rehab the house. But the whole purpose of them going, he worked for the YMCA, which was just a couple blocks away. And, but the whole purpose was that they would actually move into and dwell in this neighborhood, that they would get to know their neighbors, that they would actually reach out and be able to help their neighbors start to make their homes nicer, to start to make their yards nicer, to be able to, so that the city, so that that neighborhood, the whole purpose of their life was to be able to dwell in that neighborhood, to make their dwelling there so that they could help redeem and rehab that particular neighborhood. That's what they were spending their life doing. 
That's what they are spending their life doing. Sounds a lot like what Jesus did for us, doesn't it? That God himself left a place, he left the glories of heaven. That he came down into, he, he became, he dwelt among us into the brokenness and pain and difficulty of our world in order to rehab, to rebuild, to indeed redeem. And he died and he rose again and one day he will make all things new. We need to spend our lives. How can you, how can we be spending our lives? Because that's what, it's Christmas. That's the incarnation. That's the gospel. That's Christ. Well, finally this. The incarnation, he came, he came so that you can see. He came so that you can see. The incarnation happened. God made his dwelling among us so that he could live the perfect life that we couldn't live. He made his dwelling among us so that he could enter into our pain and the difficulty of each of our lives, but provide healing. He, he entered into, he entered into, he, he came and entered into our world so that he could send us out into the world to show the very love of God out into a dark and a broken world. All of that is true. But the primary reason Jesus came John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God, in the closest relationship with the Father, made him known. The primary reason Christ came was so that you and I could see God. Colossians tells us that all of the fullness of God was found in the manger. All of the fullness of Almighty God was found in him. The reason Christ came was for you so that your eyes could be open to be able to see all of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why he came. It was for you. It was for me. It was for us because no one would be able to see God if God didn't show himself and he did in Christ. So that is staggering because you don't deserve it and neither do I. Our world does not deserve Christ and yet Christ came for us and that's why Christmas is so glorious and that's why the, that's why the heavens were singing. That's why the angels couldn't contain their joy and their glory. The joy has come to the world and it is Christ, Christ the Lord. Bethany Jenkins, a writer, has this insightful quote and then we'll be done. When we live in light of the incarnation of Christ, our lives will be shocking to others. Although we are sons and daughters of the King, we will humiliate ourselves by serving others. All things may be permissible, but we will deny ourselves certain things or activities so that we can grow in our love for God and for others. We may earn money, but we will strategize for how we can give it away for the sake of the kingdom. Living in the physical world, we will spend more effort cultivating our inner beauty than our outer beauty. We will trust in the promises of God more than our circumstances because we know that he is for us. When we live this way, people will think we're ludicrous. They will find our choices shocking. And yet, we will point them to the miracle of the incarnation of Christ. Our lives will testify to the great news of the Advent.
that Christ has come. God is with us. Let's pray. Father, we again humbly recognize that we do not deserve to be in your presence. We do not deserve to know you or to have your name on our lips. If it was left to our own merits, then we would, we'd be, none of us would be here. We'd be struck dead. And yet, because of your grace and your mercy in your son, Jesus Christ, we are here as your children, and we can call you Father. And so we humbly say thank you and ask that uh, the, the, the words of our mouths and the meditations of all of our hearts this day and this week will be pleasing and honoring to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.